It Doesn't End Here is intended for mature audiences and may be disturbing to some. Please use discretion while listening. People who are considered emotional caretakers are caring, concerned, generous, and reliable people who sincerely want to please others. However, they can be easily manipulated by others because they tend to be passive and overly compliant and have high levels of guilt and obligation. An emotional caretaker would rather feel hurt, angry, or depressed themselves rather than have the person they care about experience any of those feelings. This makes them highly vulnerable to being taken advantage of and mistreated in relationships with people who are self-oriented and selfish. Many caretakers don't even realize that they are giving up so much of themselves. When they do notice, they may become resentful and angry, but they may keep doing it anyway. A caretaker personality is magnetizing to an emotional manipulator. When emotional caretakers are in relationships with people who respect, value, and have positive regard for them, they get their needs satisfied and there's a good balance of give and take. But in an intimate relationship with a manipulator, an emotional caretaker's values and beliefs about giving and caring and their fear of the anger, hostility, and rejection from the manipulator keeps them virtually hostage. When the caretaker disagrees or wants something different than the manipulator, they often don't or can't stand their ground, set boundaries, or solve differences because that level of combat is out of the skill range they're used to. They're at the mercy of a partner whose goal it is to get what they want, no matter who it hurts. The first step to stop being an emotional caretaker is realizing you need to value yourself and treat yourself with as much respect as you do others. Value your own wants and needs and preferences. Set boundaries that don't allow others to invalidate you, put you down, or ignore what's important to you. Care for yourself first and then offer caring to others. These small steps can really change your life. I'm Rachel Meadowcroft, and you're listening to It Doesn't End Here. Last episode, Laura told us about her eight-year marriage with Peter, and while it didn't end the way she planned, Laura was ready to move on with her life. After she filed for divorce and moved into her own apartment, she quickly got into a relationship with Mason, who was Peter's foster brother. I met Mason through my former husband, Peter. My relationship with Mason was, we were friends, I was in the family, he was a foster brother. We always had a great connection. We always had like this understanding of each other. It was never, I never once judged him for anything in his past. I never had, I never thought of him as a person I would be dating or with. 
there was something about him that always drew me to him. I think it was just like his goofy personality and something that, you know, we matched each other's energy. Neither one of us was forward with the other one during when I was married to Peter. Never happened. We were literally just friends and that's all it ever was. But when we started actually dating after the divorce, it grew into something more. Like we actually had feelings for each other. We started dating pretty immediate after my divorce. Um, My divorce was finalized in September. I had moved into another house in September. And he just kind of came over, helped me move in. One thing just led to another. It was more of a physical relationship at first. And then it turned into more of like an emotional relationship between the two of us. Did it make you feel comfortable as well that he knew your whole past? He didn't know it at first. Along the years, like we'd kind of talk about it. He didn't know about Peter's infidelity until after he got out the last time. I had kind of told him like, you know, I feel comfortable with you. I know you're not going to judge Peter for what, you know, whatever he's done. So this is kind of it. And so he was a really good listener. He was just easy to talk to. I think because I had known him for so long at that point. He made me feel safe. Like someone has been through so much in their life um, and still has a good outlook on life, like still wants to be fun, still has a big smile on his face. Like he's been through so much. And so that's kind of what attracted me to him. Peter found out about Mason and I, and he was not happy. He was very angry. The whole family kind of, I wouldn't say disowned, but kind of just they didn't really want any to do with either one of us. Laura's ex-in-laws were not thrilled she started dating Mason, and for good reason. Mason had not had an easy life. He was one of five children that was born into an abusive home. As a child, Mason didn't have anyone looking out for him. Unfortunately, there were people around Mason who took advantage of this, and Mason started being molested around the age of six. The abuse continued until Mason was in middle school. Eventually, Mason and his siblings were taken by social services and put into foster care. Mason and his sister went to live with Peter's family and to start a new path to a better life. For the first few years, Mason did really well in foster care. He fit in with his new family, and they were very loving and supportive. When Mason was in high school, he started dating a woman named Cindy. Cindy was around 20 years older than Mason and was known for being the local drug dealer in town. It was Cindy who introduced Mason to methamphetamine. Mason and Cindy argued frequently, and it was a very toxic, manipulative relationship. When Mason was mad at Cindy, he would withhold sex. This used to make her furious, and on one occasion, she retaliated by getting Mason high on meth, then ordering her 8-year-old daughter to get in bed with him. Cindy then proceeded to take pictures of them together in bed with Mason's hands on her body. When Mason woke up, he tried to explain that he had passed out and that nothing had happened, but it was too late. Cindy had already reported him to the police. At the age of 19, Mason went to jail for the first time and was charged as a level 3 sex offender. Level 3 is the most serious classification, and it legally indicates a sexual predator. Those with a level 3 status will be on the sex offender registry for life and must report to their sheriff's department four times a year. From 2012 to 2020, Mason was in and out of prison. 
Every time he would get out, he would go right back to Cindy. And every time they would get into an argument, Cindy would call the police and get him in trouble. This cycle of abuse repeated so many times that in the end, Mason was charged with an additional six felonies. Three for possession of paraphernalia, two for failure to register location, and one for burglary. This time around, Mason was not going back to Cindy. He was determined to start a new path, and Laura wanted to help Mason get back on his feet, so she started helping him look for a job. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Trauma is a catalyst. It provokes significant change in the lives of survivors, as well as in the lives of their caregivers. Join me, Carrie Rickert, on my podcast, Transformational Trauma and Healing, as our guests share their stories of trauma and the resources that have been beneficial to them. We will celebrate our guests' successes and learn from their struggles, adding tools to our trauma survival toolbox along the way. I took him around to places to try and like get him a job. And so we found this place downtown called Force Personnel. And it actually helped people um, who have felonies or who have a record. So we actually ended up getting a job. At that point in time, he was still registering at his foster parents' house. And so he didn't have to register, but every 90 days. COVID started happening a lot more. And because he was still living with foster parents, they were a lot old. They were in their 70s. And so he was like, well, everyone's getting COVID. I don't know what to do. Like, where am I going to go? It's kind of scared him at that point. And so that's kind of when he started staying with me and living with me. At the time that we decided to find a car, we found him a little Nissan Versa. It was a 2020, so brand new. It had seven miles on it. We got it for a really good deal, a really good price, and he had a job so he could pay the insurance and the payments on it. I had to put it under my name because he didn't have any credit. And if we put him on the loan, it would have made our interest rate and the payments like skyrocket. So for being just me alone, we got a better deal. We got a hold of a bank or a credit union, I think is actually what it was. And they said if he can make payments for six months without any late fees or late payments, then we'll switch the car over 100% in his name and keep, you know, the same payments, the same interest rate. So that was our goal. You know, he liked that. He could get it in his name. He could, you know, eventually have something of his own that he's never really had. It was something he could look forward to. At the end of November, he quit his job. I did not find out until probably close to Christmas, so almost a month. I did not know he had quit his job. I thought it was weird that he wasn't going in, but he was like, well, there's no jobs. It's, you know, it's uh, raining or it's too cold or what, you know. He just made up a whole bunch of excuses as to why he wasn't going into work. So I was like, I mean, that makes sense. You work outside on top of buildings. In my mind, it made sense as to why he wasn't going in if it was too cold, you know, or if it was raining. I was like, hey, how about you like pick up like a side job or like maybe try and get something. At this time, I'm still paying like all the bills at my house, obviously. And then he still is coming up with the money for the car, the insurance and the payment. So I wasn't worried. 
come January, that was the first time I had to pay for a car payment was in January and I was not happy. (laughs) I was like, you know, I'll make the payment because I don't want it to go on my credit as bad. So I made it. I had to pull the money out of my savings account. At this point, you know, footing the bill for him and me living in the house, I told him, I said, you've got to do something. I can't do all of this by myself. And so he was like, I'll pay you back. I'll get a job. So he got a job. But that's kind of where our relationship took a turn because he only worked for that job for like two weeks. You know, I was like, you've got to keep a job. We were looking at trying to get him pardoned, which would completely erase his criminal history. And so he was like, you have to hold a job. You have to volunteer. You have to basically show that you're improving your life and wanting to uh, do better for yourself. From then on, he didn't have a job. And it would cause tension in our relationship. It would cause tension between us. And it was mainly like the financial aspect. Like I was like, I can't afford both of us. Like I can't afford my car, your car, this house, all the bills, all the utilities. And so we kind of started butting heads at that point. Now, if you're seeing red flags, then you're not alone. I asked April what she thought of Mason. I met him in 2012 or 13. There was a few times I was present when he called from prison, and I got to talk to him a little bit. Um, Just, you know, hi, how are you? Like, nothing major. prison life? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Then he got out right after our trip in Florida in July of 2020. That's when I really started, we really started hanging out with him and making sure that he was okay and going to stick on the right path, make sure he didn't go back to where he didn't need to be and... So I was getting to know him on a friendship level as well as Laura after he got out of prison. How did you feel about Laura and Mason starting to date so quickly after her and Peter separated? Right after uh, Mason got released, he needed a place to stay. And so Laura had asked if when we move into a house together, that was our plan if he could stay with us. And I was like, "Mm, I guess, you know, I wasn't really like sure. Mm -hmm. And so because I was on the fence, she texted me. This is August 17th, 2020. It says, are you sure you'd be okay letting Mason stay also as a third renter? I said, I'm going to say no now. I don't think it would be a good idea. She said, why? I said, it's not the situation I want to be involved with. And she said, what situation are you referring to? So you barely answer your my phone calls or text messages. You forget about me. You started being very distant and quiet. I have a feeling it's because you know I don't agree with your latest decisions. I don't think you should be seeing Mason. I don't think you should be so infatuated by him. And the only thing you could tell me about him is he's going to treat me better. Nobody will ever treat you better than you treat yourself. If he were to treat you better than Peter, he would be respectful that you're still married and living with your husband. And he would also be respectful to Peter due to their long-lasting brotherly relationship. Regardless of how Peter treated you in the past, I think you're doing this to get the worst type of revenge you can on Peter, So you can make him feel how he made you feel. Mason is the closest thing to him right now, so you chose him. You need to be happy with yourself before adding someone else to the mix. Think about in five years where this relationship is going to go. 
No way if you ask me. It doesn't seem genuine or real. He's already cheating you and you're cheating yourself. The stipulations you're putting on him is taking away his entire lifetime worth of help, taking away people he calls family. It'll end up with you having to be his sole provider and help. You should be making yourself a priority rather than someone else, now more than ever. Oh my god, that is such a good message. I know exactly where the relationship was heading. I know exactly why she was doing it. She, I don't think she'll ever admit it, but I think she, I know why she was choosing him. Because mm-hmm. it would hurt Peter. It would hurt Peter. Once he got out, did he seem like fine? He didn't seem like he had any mental issues or anything like that? Uh, so I'm very good at reading people. <laughs> so no, mm-hmm. he did not seem fine. He did not seem that he was going to be headed on the right path. He was very scared. He was very nervous, maybe paranoid. He didn't know what to do with his life. And it it, it was sad to watch. It really was. Do you think this is where Laura's like caretaker role just kind of like swept in and she kind of was like, let me help you? 100%. 100%. That probably gave her purpose, too. It did, because it took away her downfalls with Peter. Here's Laura's friend and co-worker, Felicia. I asked her the same question. What did you think of Mason when you first met him? My name is Felicia. And I met Laura in 2015. He was nice. We'd hung out a few times just, you know, at her house or at lunch during work or things like that. I didn't know him super well. Most of the things I knew about him were things that Laura told me. He was really kind of paranoid. And she had told me that, but you could kind of pick up on that, like, If we would go to eat or something, he was kind of skeptical about, you know, did they put something in my drink or like things like that. But like I said, I mean, he was pleasant. You know, he wasn't rude or hateful or anything. Did Laura tell you about his past and that he was a sex offender? Laura told me about that in the very beginning whenever he got out and was staying with her. So I did know about that. And that, of course, did bother me. I mean, you're going to worry about your friend. Laura and Mason were getting deeper into the relationship despite April's warning. April continued to keep a close eye on Laura, and there were several times where she knew something was wrong. She had an outpatient surgery in November, and my mom took her because COVID, you can only take one person. And so she had the surgery, came to my parents' house, And she slept there most of the day after the surgery and then woke up the next morning. And I was told she did not take any pain pills so that she could drive home. 30-minute drive home. That was only three months after that text message. Right then and there, I was like, this is not a good situation. Christmas happened. With COVID, we decided just to keep it. My mom, my dad, me, and my sister for Christmas. We didn't go anywhere. And so she showed up at 10 or 10.30. She looked like she had been crying. Her face was all puffy. It wasn't red and splotchy like she'd been crying, but it was like all puffy like she had been previously crying. I I hate to say this. She did not buy anybody presents. And so that was a big red flag for me because she loves giving. Absolutely loves giving. 
And so when she didn't buy anybody presents, I was kind of like, what is going on? Like, what is really going on? The dogs came with her. There was little things with the dogs that every time they would come over, you would, like, notice they would flinch really quickly. Like, if you made a loud noise or we would get the broom out and the bigger dog, he goes out and rubs in the grass and so we have to, like, brush him off. He was all of a sudden, like, terrified of the broom. He thought my mom was about to hit him when she tried to brush off the grass. And that probably continued on for about two months where we started noticing, like, the dogs were more skittish and were more, like, loving with us. They were so excited to see us every single time. By January, Mason had been out of prison for four months and was having a hard time adjusting to normal life. At this point, Laura started to notice some deeply troubling behaviors in Mason, and their relationship started to develop into something much, much darker. At the end of January, when our relationship really took a turn for the worst, he started um, accusing me of trying to poison him. He thought that I was taking his medication. At first, I found it kind of comical. Like, I was like, well, maybe he's just trying to you know, be funny. But then it started turning like really serious. And like he started carrying around this bag and it was a bag of his medication and like a toothbrush. He would just put like random stuff in this bag and he would never leave it out of sight. Like he always carried around the house. He would carry it to the bathroom with him. He would carry it to the, if he went out in the garage to smoke, he would carry it with him everywhere. And if he forgot it at one point, he would like rip open the bag and like what did you do to it? What did, what's going on? Like, what did you put in here? What did you do to my stuff? I mean, he took some pretty heavy mental health pills. And while he was in prison, they gave him 600 milligrams of like schizophrenic medication. And he had paranoia schizophrenia. And so when he got out, they only put him on 100. Going from 600 milligrams to absolutely nothing, that's a drastic change. But they would not prescribe him the full dose that he needed. They only prescribed him 100 milligrams. And so I think he started taking it sporadically. He started becoming like more verbally abusive. He would, you know, call me names, like call me a bitch. He would call me a whore. He would call me a slut. That's kind of where it all started was in January. How did you react to that the first time he started calling you all those names and everything? I looked at him and I was like, Mason, what are you doing? You've never said these words. I've known you almost nine, ten years you've never said this to me. You've never treated me this way. I don't understand why, like, all of a sudden being this way. Like, I just didn't understand. I didn't, I I couldn't grasp it in my head. And he didn't have any way of explaining it because he didn't understand. At that point, I think he was just so mentally disturbed on his side that he couldn't, I don't think he could explain it either. At one point, he's, you know, he called me a bitch. And I said, I said, don't call me that. These words that you're calling me, I am not any of these words. You know, and he's like, oh, I'm just playing around. Like, I'm just, I'm not meaning it in like a derogatory way. And I was like, but the way you said it was derogatory. Like, you knew how to put it in a sentence to make it look like I, that's what you were calling me. I've never had anybody address me like that ever. And so it just kind of like threw me back and was just like, who is this person all of a sudden? Like, he, he's completely changed. Laura knew Mason was acting this way because he was mentally unwell. She thought that if he took his medication the way he was supposed to, and with the correct dosage, that the verbal abuse and paranoia would stop. 
Laura was angry with the prison for not weaning Mason off of these strong medications before he was released. They did not wean him off at all. Later on, um, I had talked to a detective and told him, like, you basically screwed like these people that you're supposed to be correcting their their behavior and you're just putting them in a cell all day for 23 hours a day. You're not doing anything for them like you're hurting them more than anything. And then you're just releasing them saying good luck. Despite the growing tension between them, Laura and Mason decided to go out one night to blow off some steam and go dancing at Oklahoma City's biggest country western bar, Cowboys. One of my friends had texted me and said, hey, we're going to Cowboys. Let's, you know, do you guys want to go? And I was like, well, yeah, dancing, fun, drinking, why not? So we get there. Of course, his paranoia sets in and he thinks that like these other guys in the group are like judging him and know what he's done and know his record. I'm like, no, they don't. They don't know. Like, they're not going around Googling your name, finding out who you are and like if you have a record or not. That's not how people operate. I got a little too drunk. And so he would come over and he grabbed my arm really aggressively and was like, Laura, we need to go. I was like, Mason, I'm having fun. Like, I haven't had this much fun in a long time with my friends. He like stormed off and was mad and who knows where he went. I have no idea. I didn't really pay attention. Like me and my friends, we went out and danced on the dance floor and we're having a good time. And at one point I saw him just like staring at me on the dance floor. It was almost kind of like slow motion, like in a movie. It was kind of weird. Like you could see like the people like going in front of you and like in front of him, but like you could see him and he could see you. And it was just like you two standing still, but like it was really weird. And I was like, well, that's kind of creepy. We went back to the table, sat down. He came over and like grabbed me, but like yanked me kind of out of my chair. And some of the guys that were there kind of like stood up and were like, what, you know, like, is there going to be a problem? Like, you know, and so he kind of like backed off at that point. He was like, there's no problem. And at that point, the other guys stopped drinking because they realized how aggressive he was being towards me and how, you know, kind of what he was. He was not being quiet at all. He was like, we need to go. We need to leave this place right now. And, you know, at this point, I'm like, I'm having fun. I don't care what you have to say. On our way back to the table, he, like, cuts me off, and the girls keep walking, and he grabs me and, like, shoves me out of the door to leave. So we had taken his car, my car technically, but his car. He was just, like, mad, and there was no changing him. There was no getting him to change his attitude at all. He started, like, screaming, yelling at me, telling me that we were going to break up, we were going to not ever be together again, and um, he can't handle this situation anymore. And so I was like, fine, we just won't be together anymore. That's fine with me, it's fine with you, whatever. Which is, like, a bad conversation to have with alcohol in you. Then he started just, like, screaming and yelling and cussing at me and calling me names and how I'm, like, the biggest slut in the world and I'll never amount to anything and... I started crying and I just couldn't handle hearing that along with like him yelling and screaming at me and calling me names. And so I started screaming back at him and I said, if that's really how you feel, then I'll just get out right now. We were traveling pretty fast and I opened the car door and tried to jump out. When I tried to jump out, he like grabbed me and like closed the door while we were still driving. I think it hit him that he could have lost me and it made him just like cry and he got really emotional. 
we stopped on the side of the road, we hugged, we were like, okay, we can't do that anymore. Let's not be that couple. I kind of sobered up a little bit at that point. And apparently at some point when he was yelling at me and screaming at me, I had texted my friend and told her help. Like I was scared. Finally made it back to the house and she was there with a, with a police officer. And he was terrified. We drove up, put the car in the garage, closed the garage, and then the cop was, like, banging on the door. I was terrified. I was like, oh, my gosh, he can't go back to prison. He, like, And it was kind of like a realization, like, what did I do? Now what? Like, I don't know where to go from here. I kind of started crying, and I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And he was, like, kind of, like, telling me what to say. Um, he told me to, you know, tell him that we were just in a fight and that everything's okay and that we had both been drinking and so which I don't actually know how much he had to drink at that point because I didn't ever see him drink anything so I went out and talked to the police officer a female police officer and she was like you know we're trying to make a house call to make sure that you're okay I was like I'm fine we've both just been drinking you know we had a big fight I said, but everything's okay now. We're all fine. And she was like, well, did he hit you? And I said, no. She goes, well, let me check for bruises. And so we're standing in the middle of the driveway in Oklahoma at the end of January, freezing cold. (laughs) And she's like having to like, you know, lift my shirt up to make sure there's no bruises around my, my back or my stomach. She had to look up my arms, my chest, my legs, like everything. And I was still kind of like really emotional and crying still. And then her having to sit there and do that made me want to cry even more. She was like, okay, well, there's no visible signs of anything. And I said, we're just, have been drinking. We had a fight. We're just going to go to bed and that's going to be it. You know, it's going to be better in the morning. She was like, well, there's no physical bruising. So, you know, there's nothing I can do tonight. I'll leave. But if there's anything else that goes on, you know, don't be afraid to call us. So I went back inside and I was thinking this could have been really bad. I can't believe that just happened. Like, I can't believe that the cops had to look me over for bruising. Like, how bad is this really? I couldn't grasp the whole situation, but I was scared. He was scared. I knew then I should have left. That should have been my biggest red flag right there. If I had left, I could have saved myself a lot of trauma in the next coming months. Thank you so much for listening to season two of It Doesn't End Here. If you like It Doesn't End Here, subscribe now and share with two friends. By sharing this podcast, you may help someone who you didn't even know needed help. Thank you to my friend JT for all the music in this season. For all resources used in this episode, please go to itdoesntendherepodcast.com. If you or someone you know is currently in an abusive relationship, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-SAFE. 